Uh, good morning, everyone. Good morning, River City Church. It's great to see you. Uh, so my name is John, and I am not one of the pastors here. Uh, normally, I am sitting where you are. Uh, my wife, Jenny, and our three kids, Evan, Owen, and Nora, we moved here about two years ago to be a part of River City Church. Um, our three kids are ages seven, six, and four, so our house is a lot of fun, and we really like it that way. Uh, and we're members of the Morrow Small Group. So with that said, thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, if this is your first time here, if you're visiting, welcome. We are sincerely just really glad that you're here. Um, if there's some way like, you know, myself or anyone else you've seen up here this morning can get you plugged into like community or just say hi, like don't hesitate to come talk to us. Uh, we'd just love to get you uh, connected and just get to know you. Uh, so we're in the middle of a preaching series in 1 Corinthians. All right, so this is a book uh, in the New Testament and originally it was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in the city of Corinth, right? So um, in AD 50 or so, 1 Corinthians uh, was just this letter written, um, and, and just like River City, a Corinth at the time was a five-year-old church plant, right? Corinth was a wealthy port city, and it was a really important city for trade in the Roman Empire. Uh, you can kind of think of it as like a first-century Silicon Valley with a lot of people moving in, trying to make money, right? And so the Roman Empire had actually destroyed the city like burned it to the ground 200 years before uh, this letter was written, and then 100 years later, rebuilt the city. And when they rebuilt it, they wanted to establish it with people who were really excited about Rome. And so it was largely settled by freed slaves and retired Roman soldiers. And so with this demographic, the culture really took on the shape of trying to climb the ladder, trying to make a name for yourself, trying to establish yourself as like an important person. Right, and so everything was about climbing the ladder, and making your own name for yourself. One Bible commentary puts it this way. It says, Corinth was a city where public boasting and self-promotion had become an art form. The Corinthian people lived with this honor and shame cultural orientation, where public recognition was often more important than facts. In such a culture, a person's sense of worth is based on recognition by others of their accomplishments. And as we've been discussing, right, this church was like a hot mess. Um, we've talked about their pride, their sexual morality, the divisions within their church, and even how they've taken leaders like Apollos or Paul and tried to attach themselves to those leaders to like gain status for themselves. All right, these were people who believed the gospel, but they were being formed by the culture around them. And instead of being a light in the darkness, they were looking dark just like everyone else. More specifically in our passage this morning, we're going to see that believers in the same church we're suing each other over really trivial matters, right? And these are not criminal cases we're talking about. This is like the Judge Judy kind of stuff, right? Or like there's two dudes like suing each other over like, you know, a box of Lucky Charms or something silly. So these people are suing each other over like really trivial things. Right? And these are public courts. These are visible to everyone. And instead of displaying Jesus' generosity to the watching world, they're flaunting their greed and their selfishness. This morning as Paul addresses what's going on, we're going to learn that primarily the problem was not even greed, not these lawsuits, but that the Corinthians had forgotten who they are. And we're going to see this morning that because of our identity in Jesus, we can give up our rights for the sake of the gospel mission. Because of all that Jesus has done for us, we can let go of things in this life because of the one to come and to see people meet and fall in love with Jesus. Let me pray. Dear God, thank you so much for this morning, for your word for your Holy Spirit that makes it come alive. God, we just pray that you would make yourself look really, really good because you are, because you are where life is found and it's found nowhere else. So God, I pray that you would open up our eyes and our hearts to hear, to see what it is you have to say. 
Amen. So we're in 1 Corinthians this morning, as you might have guessed. Uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. Um, it says this, If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you were to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more are the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court in front of unbelievers. The very fact you have lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All right, so again, we can just see in this passage, the Corinthians are like suing each other, taking each other to court over really trivial stuff. And you'll find that in the first verse here, Paul isn't rebuking them or even surprised that they're having conflict with one another. Right, the truth is, as human beings, whether we've trusted in Jesus or not yet, we're going to have conflict. Right? We're still sinners. We can still be selfish. And we're going to hurt each other, sometimes intentionally and sometimes unintentionally. And again, a little disclaimer, because it's important to keep this in mind. Paul here is not referring to cases like treason or murder or abuse. He was referring to really trivial things. Romans 13 and a number of other passages in the Bible say that there is a place for the courts. There is a role for government, and one of the roles of it is to punish criminals, right? But that's not the kind of stuff we're talking about here. I happen to have a next-door neighbor who I really like. We go mountain bike together. I, I really get along with this guy. Um, but let's say I loan him my lawnmower, and he brings it back a few days later, and it's not running, right? So instead of talking to my buddy and saying, hey, like, you, you know, you loan my lawnmower, uh, it broke, can you fix it? Or like coughing up the 12 bucks to fix it myself, right? Uh, I hire a lawyer, I serve him papers, and I take him to court to publicly shame him and sue him over my lawnmower being broken. That's what's going on here, which sounds insane, but you have to keep in mind, in Corinth, the culture is all about making a name for yourself, climbing the ladder, gaining status. You do that by taking advantage of people. You do that by demanding your rights. You do that by stepping on throats, and you certainly don't do it by forgiving people and absorbing their debt or their guilt on your behalf. That's what's going on, right? So the church here is just looking like the rest of the world, looking out for number one. Verse one again says, if any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly instead of before the Lord's people? We're going to get into this more in a bit, but Paul starts by addressing the Corinthians as the Lord's people. You see, he understands this issue has more to do with identity than it has to do with taking people to court. Stephen Um, who wrote this like, fantastic commentary on 1 Corinthians, he explains it this way. He says, The plaintiff has forgotten his identity in the gospel and is seeking to build his identity along Corinthian culture's lines, honor, wisdom, strength, etc. He has forgotten the gospel and he is working against the grain of the gospel in an attempt to get what only the gospel can give him. 
Elsewhere, he refers to this as gospel amnesia. That means, right, like forgetting, forgetting the gospel. And I don't know all the ins and outs of this church. I'm not a pastor here. But as far as I know, none of you are suing each other. Like, like, thank God for that. But we still see this kind of behavior all over the place, right? Um, Paul is here saying, instead, bring it to someone else. Get some help with your problem. And this is like just really practical wisdom. It's really crucial. Because if someone does something to like insult or hurt you because it's so personal to you, sometimes an outside perspective can be really helpful. This is part of why we follow Jesus in community. Because when you tell your other friend about it in confidence and say, hey man, like this guy said something to me, this is how I feel about it, they might tell you, hey, that sounds like a big deal, I think you should go talk to them. They might tell you, it sounds really minor, I think you took it personally, maybe you can just let this one go, take one for the team. Or sometimes you might find out that you were the jerk and you need to go apologize. Regardless, right, there's such a value in community, but a lot of times we just end relationships instead. And I don't know all that's going on, but I, I'd say that we see this all the time, right? People leave churches because they've been wronged or offended. Marriages end in divorce without people seeking counseling or restitution. Um, we talk uh, trash about our boss, our neighbors, our spouse, or even other people when they're not around. We take people to court in our hearts. And in our minds, we list all the reasons that we're right and all the reasons that they're wrong. Paul continues in verse 2. He says, Do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you were to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Right, so throughout this series, I think Brandon has done a good job of when we come up to passages like this that seem a little bit confusing, right, like judging angels. He's been doing a good job of putting up some guardrails to make sure we don't sort of fall off the cliff. Um, when reading this passage or anything else in the Bible, it's really important to know the plain things are the main things, right? And focusing, like, too much on angels and judging them, that, that's the kind of stuff that develops cults, right? Like, take it from someone who grew up in one. Um, but when we try to look at the main point of what Paul's saying, it's this. He says that when Christ returns to judge the world, we will judge with and under him, Paul uh, says, or excuse me, Matthew 19.18 says that Jesus tells the apostles they're going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Likewise, in Revelation 20 verse 4, we find that martyrs are sitting on thrones of judgment, reigning with Christ. So as Brandon preached last week, the last three weeks really, uh, on the resurrection from 1 Corinthians 15, when Jesus comes back to all of those who belong to him, who trusted him with their life, we're going to have resurrected bodies. Wait, we are going to be holy before God, perfect, blameless. What's more, we are going to sit as God's sons and the bride of Christ judging the world. And we're going to do a perfect job because of Jesus. Right? Like, guys, Jesus is so generous to us, it's almost sacrilegious. He's going to give us the authority to judge the world and be perfect, to look at him full in the face without blushing because Jesus has washed us from all of our wickedness. What Paul here is saying is you have the Holy Spirit now. If you trust Jesus, he lives in you now. You have everything you need in the church to, to try to take care of these, these uh, trivial matters and find like resolution to these confrontations, right? So as you look at the first few verses, it's clear from this passage that Paul is really unhappy about their behavior. Verse 1 again, it says, If you have a dispute with one another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly? And in verse 5, he says, I say this to shame you. Today, this might sound like, how dare you? 
you ought to be ashamed of yourself. We've noticed the theme in the first five chapters of this book, how Paul is a loving father. He constantly calls them his beloved children to this church in Corinth, and he says, you have a lot of guardians in Christ, but not many fathers. And again and again, he's telling them how much affection he has for them. Paul has not forgotten that in chapter 6. He's still their loving father, but this kind of language is reserved for like the most serious violations of the house rules. So why is Paul so upset? I want to submit that the first reason is because their behavior is ruining their witness. He goes on in verse 6, saying, But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact you have lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. Right? Paul here is playing on this idea that if they go to court, even if they win the lawsuit, they've already lost. It's important to know that the courts in Corinth were like in the public square, which is called a forum. Um, This is the main place of activity in all the Roman cities. And so I wanted to do like this archaeological deep dive, right, and find out as much as I could about Corinthian and Roman culture. So I went to this website called uh, Wikipedia. Wikipedia. So Wikipedia had this to say about the forum. It said, in addition to its standard function as a marketplace, a forum was a gathering place of great social significance and often the scene of diverse activities, including political discussions and debates, rendezvous, meetings, etc. What I think is really funny about that quote is they spelled out the word etc. I thought it was just etc. It's actually two words. I didn't know that. And they use the word rendezvous, which like, when do you get to use that in a sentence? But, um, you know, a lot of Bible commentaries back this up, right? The forum is where the courts were. The forums were out in the open, visible to everybody. So in those times, right, you'd go to the public square or the forum to get your groceries, Maybe you'd meet some friends of yours and get like whatever the first century equivalent of Starbucks was, and you could watch a live trial for entertainment. But there's like a spectacle to a trial. That's why there's so many movies and TV shows that take place there. I think like My Cousin Vinny, kind of dating myself now. But because these courts were out in the open, they were a form of entertainment. And as we talked about in previous sermons, like skilled oratory or speech giving was a great way to bolster your status, climb the ladder, make a name for yourself in Corinth. What's more is judgments were often ruled in favor of the wealthy or the noteworthy at the expense of the poor. Because if you're in Corinth and you're buying into this lie that like you need to make a name for yourself and climb that ladder, what better way to do it as a judge than to rule in favor of someone who can get you up the ladder with them? So this is the backdrop, right? Now imagine like you're a Corinthian in the first century and you've heard there's kind of this relatively new religious group that's come into town. You don't know a whole ton about them, but you know they splintered off from the Jews, that they make this big deal about this guy named Jesus who apparently performed miracles and rose from the dead. And now imagine you're in the forum and you see someone you work with that's a part of this new religious group in court. And they are like yelling at the judge, berating him. And what you find out after listening for a while is that a friend of his from church has knocked over this like expensive family heirloom, this vase, And he wants this guy to pay him back. And he is screaming at the judge, like, give me what's mine. He's furious at his friend. But it's clear that his friend doesn't have the money to pay him. This was just an accident. When you walk out of there, what is your impression of your friend? What do you think he cares more about, his stuff or his brother? Jeff Vanderstelt correctly points out that in Corinthian courts, just like courts today, there is no opportunity for forgiveness. There is a verdict. You are either guilty or not guilty. The first reason Paul is being so direct with them is he knows the reputation of Jesus 
is directly tied to the reputation of his church. At our membership class here at River City, we talk a lot about how the reputation of Jesus in Dubuque is directly tied to the reputation of River City because this city's not that big and there's not that many gospel preaching churches here. Like We need to understand this morning that the way we treat each other and the way we treat people outside this building is either going to establish or destroy Jesus' reputation here. The reason they're already defeated, as Paul said, is because their witness has been lost. And I want to make it clear, no one's going to get saved without us verbalizing the gospel, and we are not going to be perfect, not in this life. But Paul is saying that making disciples in the city, right, like that's that's gone. As long as Jesus' reputation is one of greed and selfishness here, no one's going to want to hear it. Here's the truth. No one wants to hear about a generous God from a stingy person. And no one wants to hear about a forgiving God from an unforgiving person, from someone who holds grudges and is full of bitterness and can't let anything go. In verse 7, Paul challenges them saying, why not rather be wronged and why not rather be cheated? The reason it's it's better to be wronged or to be cheated is because there is a judgment coming. And when Jesus returns, people are either going to spend forever with him in glory, in peace, in joy, but they're going to spend forever without him, miserable. When we flaunt our greed, when we treat each other like stepping stones to gain something for ourselves, we are slamming the door to the kingdom in people's faces. I want to make it clear. I'm not saying that you need to get all your stuff together to make disciples or that your neighbor's not going to make it into heaven because you've made mistakes, right? We serve a sovereign God who desperately loves to build his kingdom and uses very imperfect people like you and me. But the things we do matter. They matter throughout eternity. Paul knows not only is their witness being ruined, but the, the other reason he's so upset is his identity, is, their identity rather, is being forgotten. Paul begins this letter by stating who they are as Christians. Twice he calls them the Lord's people. Your translation might say saints. It means the same thing. You see, our actions always flow from who we think we are. And in this passage, we have this call from God to be wronged and to be cheated for the name of Jesus. That's a really big deal, and it's really hard. And if you're like me, and you first read this passage, and you're like, that doesn't sound so bad, like, I graciously encourage you to, like, rethink that. It is really hard to give up what you think is rightfully yours for the kingdom of God. God calls us to represent this upside-down kingdom where you don't get to the top, you don't get to the glory by climbing the ladder, but by descending it like Jesus did. If you're like me, you might have thought, you know, hey, being wrong for Jesus' name sounds like really noble and impressive, but I don't know how to do that, and I'm not even sure that I want to. The only way we can live like this, the only way, is when we see that Jesus was wronged and cheated for us. Paul continues by reminding the Corinthians of who they really are. Verses 9 through 11 read this way. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor uh, adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed You were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
Right, Paul here has like this big list of sins, which is kind of no fun to preach through, but I just want to kind of break these things into two categories. The first half of this list mostly deals with sexual sin. That means any sex outside of a marriage between a husband and a wife. The second part deals with selfishness in various forms. What we need to see this morning is that you and I, every one of us, we're on this list. We're all here. If our identity is in our works, the only thing we bring to God is sin. It's all we have to offer. Sin and neediness. But if you're in Christ this morning, you have to hear this. And if you remember nothing else walking out of here, listen, you are not defined by what you do. You're defined by what Jesus did for you. It's his work that gives you your identity. It's his work that gives you your name. If you have trusted in Jesus, God says to you this morning, you are washed. That means his blood was used like soap to cleanse all the filth of sin from within you. God says to you this morning, you are sanctified. That means you are set apart for God's like holy, perfect purposes. And finally, God says you are justified. That's a fancy Bible way of saying not guilty. There's a deep irony here, guys, because the Corinthians are super guilty because they're suing each other in front of the whole watching city. They're going to court trying to justify themselves and say, look how right I am. Instead of coming to Jesus and saying, I'm wrong, but he's right. They're guilty, and because of Jesus, God says you're not guilty. That's what God says to you if you're in Christ. That's what he's inviting you to if you're not. When we see how Jesus endured our guilt and the punishment for us, when that really clicks in our hearts, we'll be able to give and love generously because he has loved us generously. And the only way we can be wronged and be cheated is when we see that Jesus was cheated and wronged for us. This is the call to the upside-down kingdom of God to descend the ladder. What's more, guys, we have an inheritance. Not only has our sin been washed away, but we are going to reign as God's sons and daughters, the bride of Christ for all eternity. I can't imagine what that's going to look like. We can't even fathom it. But it's going to be better than anything you have to give up for his name. I promise that. God promises that. He's worth it. He has given us a name that is better than all the ones that we strive for. This is the thing the Corinthians forgot, and it's why they're suing each other. And guys, this is what we forget all the time. If you're defined by your intelligence this morning, you're not really going to listen when people talk. You're going to be totally preoccupied with proving you're the smartest person in the room. If you trust your career for your identity, you are going to put your family, your friends, your church, and even your relationship with God on the chopping block because you've believed a lie. And that lie is if you could just be the department head or the VP of sales or the president of engineering, you would finally be somebody worth loving. If your identity is in your bank account today, you're going to be stingy and selfish with everything. And you're going to find in time that instead of using money and loving people, you are going to love money and use people. Finally, if your identity is in your sexuality, you will be filled with either pride or shame. I don't stand up here as someone who's innocent. Honestly, I've always been like a, a pretty thin person. On top of it, my last name is Lightbody, so you can imagine what high school is like for me. Um, but it bothers me that I'm thin. When I look in the mirror, I, I just see someone who's like really weak and frail, and I've spent a lot of time at gyms and just trying to eat more food and just trying to gain this weight because I believe this lie. And it comes right from the pit of hell, but it says, John, if you were just bigger, if you could just fill out a shirt, if your arms were just bigger, you'd finally be someone worth respecting and loving and listening to. 
but Jesus. He looks on you and I in our spiritual weakness. And he says, my power is made perfect in your weakness because our sin is so great and his love is so fantastic. The place he has taken us from and the place he is taking us to, it makes him look so good. He became weak to save you and I. He was brutally murdered, taking on all God's punishment for our sin so we could be called holy, righteous, sanctified, justified. He died so you and I could finally just forget about ourselves and start thinking about him and start thinking about other people. Stephen Um puts it this way. He says, when we lapse in our identity, right, when we forget who we are, the answer is not to learn a new one, but to remember who we already are. Right? Our identity in Christ allows us to absorb the blows from others because Christ absorbed them on our behalf. Christ bore the ultimate grievance in our place. He endured the wrong we ought to have endured. He was defrauded of what was rightfully his. If Christ absorbed all our wrongs and all our attacks and all our rejection, then when others do the same to us, we can practice gospel memory instead of gospel amnesia. You see, in the courtroom, Paul says, they lost even if they win. But in Jesus, you won, even though you already lost. Maybe this morning you realize there's someone you are harboring bitterness against, right? Maybe you guys went out to lunch, they forgot to pay their tab, you had to pick it up. You're angry about it. Maybe you've loaned something to somebody, they haven't brought it back, and you're just harboring this bitterness against them. Maybe this morning you realize there's someone that you've been taking to court in your mind, in your heart, listing over and over all the reasons they're wrong and all the reasons you're right. I find this especially tempting in my marriage that when my wife and I, if we get into an argument, I'm constantly listing all the reasons she's wrong, all the reasons I'm right. Paul is so frustrated this morning because we are dealing with the name of Jesus here. There is no higher name and there is no more important thing. It's his reputation that's being damaged do you recognize this morning that your bitterness is obvious to people? You're not hiding it as well as you think. Your children hear how you talk about people. Your spouse and your coworkers and your friends do too. Or maybe this morning you realize that the way you interact online isn't loving or kind or compassionate. As corny as it is, right, like social media is the forum of today. It's a public space where everyone's talking. Is the way that you're representing Jesus there telling lies about who he is or telling the truth about his graciousness and his compassion and his forgiveness? Where is God calling you this morning to remember all the wrong that he absorbed on your behalf? That's what God is calling us to do today. To remember, remember, remember. To remember the cross. To remember God's love to remember the unbelievable identity he has graciously given you through no action of your own, to remember the gospel. And this is why we take communion. It's a chance to remember. Jesus told us to do this in remembrance of him. Right, if you haven't taken a, a communion cup on your way in, there's two tables in the back you can take from there. And if you belong to Jesus, right, if you've trusted your life to him, whenever you're ready, when we're singing, go back, take communion. Remember that his body was broken and his blood was shed for you. It was personal. And if you don't belong to Jesus this morning, first off, like, we are really happy that you're here. This church was planted to share the love of Jesus with people in this city. But I would just ask you, like, hold off on taking communion. Religious rites and ceremonies don't make you right with God. As we've seen in this passage, we're washed 
sanctified and justified because of Jesus' blood and nothing else. Either way, I implore you to talk to God today. Tell him you need him. Ask him to show you where you're putting your identity in something besides him. Ask him to show you where you're damaging his reputation, where you work or at home. And tell him all your doubts and fears. He's not surprised. He knows already, but he wants to hear it from you. God is for you this morning. It's why he died, and it's why he rose again. And he is worth trusting with everything that you have. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you so much for your death, for your resurrection, for your unbelievable mercy to undeserving sinners. God, we have all our hope and joy and peace to be found in you, and I pray we would not try to find it anywhere else. God, as your Holy Spirit just moves this morning, I pray that you'd be just encouraging people to surrender everything they have to you, whether for the first time or for the thousandth time. I pray that there would just be like this deep sense of joy and peace to your people, and that you'd continue to draw those who don't belong to you yet towards yourself. God, we ask you to do this for your glory and for our joy, and for your namesake in the city of Dubuque. Amen.